in integrated unity but still dazzling diversity, placed on the loving heart of Aaron himself, the breastplate's jeweled splendor embodies an aspiration for Israel, one eloquently enunciated by Lincoln in the second inaugural, with malice toward none, with charity for all. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 26, Priestly Garments and Gettysburg. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. On November 19, 1863, Americans gathered in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, to listen to what they could feel instinctively would be one of the extraordinary addresses in American history. The man to whom they were listening was the orator Edward Everett, who spoke for several hours. Following the main event, the President of the United States stood up and delivered several sentences that would somehow succinctly capture not only the meaning of the moment, but also the essence of the American experiment. But how exactly did he say it, and what exactly did he say? The answer tells us something profound, not only about Lincoln, but about the political perspective of the Bible itself. Having described the blueprint of the tabernacle, Exodus now turns to the dress code of the Kohanim, the priests that minister within the holy. Most are adorned in a simple set of four pieces of clothing, but the high priest, which is to be Aaron, is meant to radiate splendor. Exodus 28.2 And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother, for splendor and for beauty. But is the intention here only to glorify God? This seems to be the purpose of one of Aaron's garments, the me'il, or robe, which is adorned with bells on the hem to herald his arrival into the holy, as described in verse 35. And it shall be upon Aaron to minister, and the sound thereof shall be heard when he goeth in unto the holy place before the Lord. But when we examine the other garments, a political theme also introduces itself. We are informed of an aphod, or apron, hanging from two shoulder pieces, onyx stones, on which are emblazoned the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 10. Six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the six that remain on the other stone, according to their birth order. Here, the inscriptions of Israel are joined as one, half on one side, half on the other. But, also attached to these stones, covering the chest, the heart of the high priest, is the choshen, the breastplate, displaying twelve different individual gems, each engraved with a tribal name. Verse 21, And the stones shall be according to the names of the children of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engraving of a signet, Everyone according to his name, they shall be for the twelve tribes. Thus, the jewels serve as an ornamental embodiment of the Israelite polity. But, whereas on the onyx shoulder stones the names are undifferentiated, here each is different, emblazoned on a stone that is unique. Here is at least one English rendering of the gems as they are described, starting in verse 17. And thou shalt set in it settings of stones, four rows of stones. A row of ruby, topaz, and crystal shall be the first. And the second, a red garnet, a sapphire, and an emerald. And the third, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. This is the breastplate. Each stone singular and separate. Each with its own luminance and luster. But only joined is the true aesthetic effect achieved. The breastplate, or choshen, 
provides an embodiment of Israel in which difference is recognized, with its many members and tribes blessed with varied vocations that enhance each other. In unpacking further what precisely this is intended to teach, we must ponder not only this glorious garment, but also the man designated to wear it. On whose heart would the breastplate rest? Who is the designated high priest? It is Aaron, brother of Moses. In what did Aaron's worthiness lie? Why was he elected for the high priesthood? Why was it forever affiliated with his family? The answer, as some suggest, can be found in God's statement at the beginning of Exodus. As we have seen, Moses, standing before the burning bush, balked at the divine calling, feeling inadequate for the task of leadership, and only agrees to take on the divine charge when he is informed that his elder brother will join him and represent him before Pharaoh. God's words back in Exodus 4.14 are important to review. The Almighty says, Is there not Aaron thy brother the Levite? I know that he can speak well. And also behold, he cometh forth to meet thee, and when he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart. Note here how the heart of Aaron is emphasized. The Almighty not only assures Moses that his brother will speak on his behalf, but also that he will rejoice in doing so. It is all too easy, ladies and gentlemen, to miss the magnitude of this verse. Every ancient society has an origin tale of fratricide and sibling rivalry. Divinely revealed scripture gives us Cain killing Abel, Judah kidnapping Joseph. Pagan myths describe Romulus killing Remus in Rome, Osiris killing Set in the origins of the Egyptian divinities. In Exodus, again in revealed scripture, we are told how Moses is informed that when Aaron, among the elite of Israel, finds out that his younger, long-lost brother has been chosen to be the most important Israelite ever, there will be nothing but happiness in Aaron's heart. It may well have been this one act, this joyous greeting given to Moses that merited Aaron the high priesthood. Aaron is informed that his brother and his baby brother at that, who had himself grown up not in squalor and slavery but splendor, not poverty but palaces, had been chosen to become the most influential Israelite in the history of our people, and Aaron responds with nothing but joy and without the slightest trace of envy. Given, ladies and gentlemen, what we know from Genesis, we might have expected Aaron to react with resentment, thinking, why is the Redeemer him and not me? Why, he might have thought, should I, the eldest, serve as his assistant, his spokesman to Pharaoh? But no, the Almighty asserts to Moses, Aaron will see you and there will be nothing but joy in his heart. I believe it was George Burns who once said that, in life, sincerity is everything. If you can fake that, you've got it made. Aaron is utterly sincere. There is only joy in his heart. Exodus is not Genesis. Here is a man that does not define his success by the achievements of others. A man who seeks to use his God-given talents to their fullest, even as he rejoices when others do the same. Aaron does not begrudge Moses his fame. The origins of Israel's polity will not be Romulus and Remus. It will not even parallel the true tensions of Jacob and Esau or Joseph and Judah. Moses only becomes who he is called to be. He only embraces his own identity because of Aaron's embrace of him. Moments such as these, devoid of envy, are so rare in the history of nations, though they do occur. Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, Team of Rivals, describes the relationship between Lincoln and the members of his cabinet who had themselves sought to lead the Republican Party. 
Most interesting to my mind is the example of William Seward, Lincoln's Secretary of State. Seward, a prominent politician, had had every reason to expect the nomination and was surely chagrined to have to serve as a cabinet member to a seeming political neophyte. At the beginning of Lincoln's term during the Fort Sumter crisis, Seward wrote a memorandum that seemed to unconstitutionally infringe on the president's authority. Lincoln, at this point, could have fired him. Goodwin cites an earlier biography of Lincoln that reflects, quote, had Mr. Lincoln been an envious or resentful man, he could not have wished for a better occasion to put a rival under his feet, end quote. But Lincoln did not do this, and Seward himself ultimately became the president's chief spokesman, an admirer and dear friend of the president, working to effectuate Lincoln's vision. He became, as it were, an Aaron to the Redeemer president, overcoming all his earlier envy, devoting his extraordinary talents wholeheartedly to the greater good, and the Republic was better for it. This, then, is the meaning of the breastplate's precise placement. Verse 29, And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goeth in unto the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Moses' brother, who in Egypt rejoiced in his heart, will now bear the breastplate on his heart. In integrated unity but still dazzling diversity, placed on the loving heart of Aaron himself, the breastplate's jeweled splendor embodies an aspiration for Israel, one eloquently enunciated by Lincoln in the second inaugural, with malice toward none, with charity for all. This is how Israelites are asked to see one another. Aaron alone can demand it. Aaron alone can embody this aspiration, for he is the first elder biblical brother to eschew envy, to find his own role in God's providential plan, and he thereby can ask all Israel to do the same. But what can inspire us to imitate Aaron? The answer for the Bible begins with faith. In the play A Man for All Seasons, a character who desires fame and power is told by Thomas More to become a schoolteacher, and he asks, But if I was a teacher, who should know it? And Thomas More responds, You, your students, and God. Not a bad audience, that. Envy, as the medieval Jewish exegete Abraham Ibn Ezra argues, is ultimately a lack of faith because it reflects a focus on what others have rather than a focus on living meaningfully one's own life on behalf of the audience that truly matters most. One must believe in a providential plan before one seeks one's own part to play within it. And this, in turn, brings us to another garment of Aaron, one which adorns his head rather than his heart. Exodus 28, 36. And thou shalt make a band of pure gold and engrave upon it the engraving, Holy unto the Lord. A headband, or a crown, is worn by the high priest, known as a tzitz, It too radiates splendor, but unlike the breastplate, it bears not the names of Israel's tribes, but rather the ineffable appellation of the Almighty. The breastplate represents the polity. The golden crown of the high priest is a symbol of God's sovereignty. But the latter is worn above the former. And I believe it is by Joseph Soloveitchik who suggests that this emphasizes the preeminence of the spiritual over the political not because the political is unimportant, but precisely because it is vital and therefore 
its own relationship with the spiritual, is so critical. The high priest, one might suggest, personifies the Israelite polity, and in the precise placement of these two glorious garments, the crown above the breastplate, we are given not only sartorial splendor, but also the ultimate embodiment of a nation under God. Here we can find an unexpected connection between the priestly garments and Gettysburg. In dedicating the graves of the fallen soldiers, Lincoln declared famously that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Two words here, under God, inspire further reflection. The drama of Lincoln's life is that of a man who was once known as the local agnostic, who, caught in the maelstrom of bloodshed that was the Civil War, came to seek theological meaning in the providence of God. Thus, the very opening word of the Gettysburg Address, fourscore, is intended to evoke the King James Bible, to sound a scriptural note. As Adam Gopnik once put it, Lincoln had, quote, mastered the sound of the King James Bible so completely that he could recast abstract issues of constitutional law in biblical terms, making the proposition that Texas and New Hampshire should be bound by a single post office sound like something right out of Genesis, end quote. The Gettysburg Address was thus a call to covenantal renewal, rededication to the proposition that all men are created equal, a new birth of freedom sanctified by the sacramental blood of the soldiers that had died. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is where it really gets interesting. In the drafts of the address written by Lincoln, before it was delivered, the words under God do not appear in Lincoln's handwriting. But every copy that Lincoln wrote out of the address after that day does contain them. Moreover, the newspaper transcript from the reporters that were there confirms that Lincoln specified that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. All this indicates, and I am grateful to my friend, the Lincoln biographer Harold Holzer, for inspiring this part of my reflection, that while Lincoln had not initially intended to invoke the divine, nevertheless overcome in the emotion of the moment, Lincoln in the address added these two words in, under God, further transforming a speech that originally elided a direct reference to the Almighty into a biblically-inspired speech for the ages. For Lincoln had come to see that only if we see ourselves as a nation under God can we understand that as a nation we are judged, as a nation we are punished, but also only if we saw ourselves as a nation under God could we as a nation come together. After describing the glorious garments of the high priest, Exodus 29, devotes itself to the procedure by which Moses prepares Aaron for the high priesthood. Moses the Redeemer, suddenly spiritually celebrating and sanctifying his elder brother, will ultimately inspire the exquisite statement of Psalms, Behold, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together. And we too, a nation under God, are intended as a people to ponder how our own success need not come through envy of others. Interestingly, the historian Ted Widmer notes that Edward Everett's address at Gettysburg was actually a success, that eyewitnesses recall the audience in tears during his remarks, and moreover, that Everett's words set the stage for Lincoln's own remarks. As Widmer puts it, quote, To be sure Lincoln was triumphant at Gettysburg, 
over the anti-democratic cause that had nearly prevailed with Lee's army, and in a way over death itself, but not over Everett. They had worked from different points of origin toward a common goal, a point that was itself democratic. And Everett's lengthy speech was necessary for Lincoln to have the freedom to write short, 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 like an old vaudeville act featuring performers of different size and shape. The long and the short of it needed to go together, end quote. Strikingly, Everett later wrote to Lincoln without envy that, quote, I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes, end quote. And the president, who had come to firmly believe in a nation under God, responded with equal grace, and he wrote, My dear sir, your kind note of today is received. In our respective parts yesterday, you could not have been excused to make a short address, nor I a long one. I am pleased to know that, in your judgment, the little I did say was not entirely a failure. Of course, I knew Mr. Everett would not fail. And yet, while the whole discourse was eminently satisfactory and will be of great value, there were passages in it which transcended my expectation. End quote. With envy toward none, with a role in God's providential plan for all. This, in the end, is what the priestly garments ask of us. This is what the heart of the high priest asks of us. This is what Aaron asks of us. The laws of the temple and the tabernacle may seem initially irrelevant to our lives, but once again, they teach a lesson that is eternal and which will therefore not perish from the earth. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.